This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio on 1160 AM, 103.1 FM, WMET, the Guadalupe Radio Network. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek, Digital Editor for the Archdiocese of Baltimore and the Catholic Review. Bishop James Su Jimin is a Chinese bishop who has endured approximately four decades of political imprisonment for his opposition to the communist government of China. Admired around the world and especially by persecuted Catholics of the underground Catholic Church in China, Bishop Su is recognized as a champion of human rights. Trinitarian Father Stan Debeau, who worked on international human rights and religious liberty as a foreign affairs advisor to Congressman Chris Smith, met Bishop Su in the 1990s. Father Debeau has also spoken extensively with Chinese Catholics, both those within the underground Catholic Church and also those loyal to the state-run Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association. Father Debeau, who now serves as chaplain of St. Martin's Home for the Aged and the Little Sisters of the Poor in Catonsville, joins us in our first segment to talk about Bishop Sue and the Church in China. In our second segment, we'll learn about St. Elizabeth Ann Seton from the author of a highly praised biography of the first American-born saint. But first, here's our conversation with Father Debeau. Father Stan Debeau, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. Well, thanks for having me, George. Good to be here. Could you tell us, tell our audience just exactly who Bishop Su was and what makes him such an inspiring figure to Catholics in, in China? Oh, I would love to. Um, meeting Bishop Su was probably one of the most uh, important experiences in my own life personally. Um, I had never heard of him before I went to China with uh, Congressman Smith, and uh, we were met by uh, Joseph Kung, who was the nephew of Cardinal Ignatius Kung, who uh, spent uh, over 40 years in prison in China until he was released and when he went to the Vatican, that's when he found out that he had been made a cardinal. Uh, but Joseph met us there and he had very strong connections in the underground church. And one of the people he wanted us to meet was Bishop Sue, who had just been released from prison after almost 20 years uh, there in a hard labor camp. So when he, uh, he took us to the bishop's apartment, where uh, the bishop invited us to celebrate Mass with him. And it was the Feast of the Epiphany. And uh, in his little room that he lived in, he had a small nativity set, set up and a small Christmas tree. And we celebrated Mass with the bishop, myself, Congressman Smith, and three other people who were part of the delegation that we were with. And afterwards, we had the opportunity to speak with him. He was the Bishop of Baoding, and uh, was very critical of the Chinese government. And so in order to re-educate him or to remove him from uh, contact that he had with people, he was sent to hard labor camps where uh, in the hard labor camp, he had an accident one day when the rocks that were in the, um, the wheelbarrow that he was with 
turned over on his leg and he fractured his leg and he's walked with a limp ever since then. So with the, the hard labor, the lack of medical care that he had received, he comes out of this with permanent damage and uh, was hopefully looking forward to beginning anew his ministry outside of the prison camps. So it was really an honor for us to meet him and to hear of his, first of all, to hear of his experience there, but the strength and the courage and the faith that he had, that his mission was still going to continue regardless of what the government had been doing with him. What was his main offense in the eyes of the communists? That he was um, a, a, he was against the government. Um, he was a seditionist, and uh, they wanted him to belong to the Catholic Patriotic Association, the Catholic Patriotic Church, which is the official church in China. But Bishop Su, although he was the uh, Vatican-appointed bishop of Baoding, was never recognized by the uh, Chinese government. And so whatever he did was always seen as being anti-government activity. For a while, they uh, they tolerated what he was doing, but eventually they thought that he was getting too dangerous and uh, being uh, uh, too difficult in dealing with them, and so they put him in prison. And the bishop knew that in meeting you that he was very likely going to go back to prison. Is that right? He did, yes. As we were uh, talking with him, uh, Congressman Smith said to him, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Or ask him, what do you think is going to happen once they find out you've met with us? And he said he had no doubt that they would arrest him again and send him back to prison. But it was something he was willing to do because one of the things we kept hearing from many people in the underground church there was, please go back and tell people the truth. Please go back and tell people what you see and what you hear. And so he was willing to take this risk so that he could get the news out about what was really happening with the church in China. And he was arrested as you were leaving. Is that right? You were on the plane and he was being arrested. We were on the plane yeah. on our way. We were on the plane on our way back. And when we landed in Washington, we had found out that he had been rearrested. Um, he was released about a year later. And then in 1997, he was arrested once again. And uh, he, except for one meeting that he had in 2003, uh, he's ne he hasn't been seen since then. What keeps the faith in the underground church strong when they face such persecution, both their leaders and, and just the regular Catholics in the pews? What keeps them going? It's their faith, um, their belief that, you know, that Christ is with them. One of the opportunities I had on this trip was also to celebrate Mass or concelebrate a Mass with the underground church. And uh, it was actually earlier than that day when we met with Bishop Sue that uh, we had traveled way out into the countryside. And when we got to a small village, the uh, mass was being held in the, uh, the stalls where they keep the animals, perfect place to be for Epiphany. And uh, there were thousands of people there that had come from all over and just to see, in, in standing in the cold and uh, outside, and to see their faith, to see the look of, of just absolute trust in God on their face, uh, and that each one of them were risking something in order to be there. And it was everything from young children to older people. It just they they knew that God was with them, and that this was their mission. That if they suffered for it then they knew that the, the church would grow stronger through their suffering as well.
And Bishop Sue has not been seen since 2003, I believe. And there are many people are yes. speculating now that, that he's actually dead. What, what do you think? Is yes. I, knowing his age, he's probably well into his 80s or 90s at this point. Uh, just given his age, it wouldn't surprise me that he died in the prison and they just never uh, let anyone know. It wouldn't surprise me that, you know, it, just in the way he was treated, um, he was killed because of this. But the uh, there were, the Chinese government and uh, with the Vatican allowed a coadjutor bishop to be named several years ago. And it's been in the last year that the government has asked that the coadjutor bishop be made the ordinary of Baoding. And that's a signal that, you know, something has happened that we're not going to see Bishop Sue again. He's unable to uh, return to his diocese. And rather than just tell us he's died, I think they're just asking them to, you know, make this change. And yet the Vatican has not done that yet. They want to know what's happened to Bishop Sue. What do you make of some of the recent efforts by Pope Francis to improve relations between the Vatican and China, especially by giving some level of control to the communist authorities over the appointment of bishops, which has been a big, big sticking point over the decades? It has been a big sticking point. And, um, you know, I I think anything we can try to help the uh, the underground church, the, the Catholics there, uh, to to be able to function more in the open, uh, we need to start taking steps. And with anything, I think it's the small steps that that we take. Uh, part of the agreement, and of course the, the agreement's never been fully made known public, but part of the agreement is that uh, the Chinese government is asked to submit three names of people that they would like to be made bishops and recognized by the Vatican. And then the Vatican is to choose one of those three. So it's kind of an, uh, you know, a cooperative thing that they're doing. And, you know, we may not like it, but it may be that first step. Um, it's also a step, I think, in reconciling the two different communities. Even people that I met, the, the lay people that I met, the people in the pews from the uh, Catholic uh, uh, Patriotic Church, I didn't find in them the um, uh, that they were, you know, the, the Communist Party. They were people who were in the pews. They had a very strong faith. And this was one place where they could go in the churches that were open and the masses that were available to live their faith out publicly. I've never lived under persecution like that. Um, I don't know what choices I would make myself. But, you know, I, I know that uh, it never happened to me, but I know with other people who have met with them, they've met some priests who, you know, after they've uh, talked to them, will secretly tell them, I, I'm loyal to the Pope, I'm loyal to the Pope, tell people I'm loyal to the Pope. So there's a mixed bag uh, within the Catholic uh, Patriotic Association uh, that maybe we need to be looking for inroads there as well. So with the Vatican uh, making some progress in this, we see where it goes. But I think the Vatican also needs to be pressing for qu answers to questions like what has happened to Bishop Sue, or maybe even questioning some of the um, the, the bishops that they that the Chinese government is uh, nominating to to be an ordinary. Um, so I think the Vatican has has a foot in the door. Uh, after having no uh, no presence there at all for so many years, uh, that we need to give them the time to work on this and to 
maybe make the next step as they get ready to negotiate a new agreement since the current agreement is up at the end of this uh, this month, I believe it is. What can Catholics in the pews here in the United States do to help persecuted Catholics over in China? The first thing that anyone that I've met who's lived under persecution, whether it's China or countries in Eastern Europe when that was a, an issue, um, is to pray for them. We can let them know that people are praying for them and praying with them. Then it will give them that, that continued strength and encouragement to keep living their faith because they are, the, they are witnesses to us of the spirit alive and keeping people strong in this time of persecution. Well, Father Stan DeBeau, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. You're welcome. Good to be here. When we return, we'll share an encore interview with Catherine O'Donnell, author of a highly acclaimed biography of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. You're listening to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. We'll be back in a moment. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Archbishop William E. Lurie said he was greatly dismayed by the September 14th decision of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, siding with President Donald Trump's plan to end a particular immigration protection status that would have allowed people from six countries that have suffered disasters to remain in the United States. The court said the president was within his rights to revoke what's called Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, from Salvadorian immigrants. The ruling is also expected to affect TPS holders from Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua, the Sudan, and Nepal. TPS grants a work permit and a reprieve from deportation to certain people whose countries have experienced natural disasters, armed conflicts, or exceptional situations to remain temporarily in the United States. Archbishop Lurie said it is particularly distressing to consider the impact of this decision if they are forced to return to their native countries and the harsh conditions which they fled. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the virtual newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. You are listening to Catholic Review Radio on 1160 AM and 103.1 FM WMBT, the Guadalupe Radio Network. Catherine O'Donnell is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University who writes about religion, culture, and politics in early America. She is the author of Elizabeth Seton, American Saint. Here's our interview with Catherine O'Donnell, recorded last year. Catherine O'Donnell, thanks for being here on the show. Thank you. How did you develop an interest in St. Elizabeth Ann Seton? What, what sparked the idea for this biography? I think it came from kind of two two streams. So I grew up uh, reading saint stories, loving that part of Catholicism. Um, and then quite separately, I was uh, an M, an historian of the early American Republic. Um, and I'd always thought of those two things as separate. And then I was t- 
teaching a class on the early republic through biographies, asking students to find an individual they were interested in. And one young woman said, I would like to write about Mother Seton. And I said, what a wonderful idea. Um, and I worked with her on her paper, and then that planted the seed for my own years of research afterward. For listeners who may not be familiar with Mother Seton, could you give a sort of brief overview of who she was and some of the accomplishments of her life? Sure. She had a, a really uh, kind of short, uh, 46 years, but dramatic life. And she was born in New York City uh, just before the American Revolution. Uh, she lost her mother during that war. Um, her father remarried. Um, but she had kind of a difficult childhood with a, a sort of awkward, cold stepmother. Um, and she was actually brought up Episcopalian, kind of a casual <laughs> Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. Uh, she married, she had a very happy marriage to a, a, a handsome, tall, transatlantic merchant. And she had five children. She got more interested in um, Christianity as she uh, grew into womanhood and as her husband Um, His health was failing, and his business was failing. Um, And then she and her husband, William, and one daughter went to Italy to try to save his health. He had tuberculosis, and his his business, he died almost on arrival there. And that's when she was introduced to Catholicism. And although it would prove very controversial, uh, she chose to convert. And it was after that, then, that she founded what became the American Sisters of Charity, who, of course, in the succeeding centuries, founded all kinds of schools and orphanages and programs, and who still exist as the Sisters and Daughters of Charity today. You subtitle your book American Saint, which seems really appropriate because you delve in both to the Americanness of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, but also her sanctity. Could you talk about what specifically made St. Elizabeth Ann Seton so uniquely American, and then maybe what was it about her holiness that attracted you? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. She is American in kind of the sense of possibilities that her life afforded her so that she was exposed to a variety of religions. Um, She chose among them after considerable thought, and then she chose to share her Catholicism in a very gentle way, um, not so much by trying to arguing to by trying to argue other people into sharing it, but rather by living in such a way and teaching in such a way, so that people who came in contact with her wanted to learn about her faith and were were drawn to it. And I think that's also the part of her sanctity that I have found most moving is its roots in compassion and love so that she herself really knew what suffering was, knew what it felt like not to feel at home even in her own home as a child, knew what it was like to lose loved ones, to worry about her teenage sons. And all of those things, instead of driving her to be self-defensive or to judge others or to be bitter all of them drove her kind of to find a deeper relationship with God, but also to seek a more deep and gentle and loving relationship with other people. And she has some really beautiful writings about finding God in nature, especially when she was in Emmitsburg. Absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yes, um, 
she she loved mass and the material culture of Christianity and Catholicism, but she also just loved to go out into the woods, to go out into a meadow, and to to feel a kind of communion with with God and with the beauty of creation. And that also is something um, that she has in common with other American religious figures like Jonathan Edwards, for example, and others. And it it really is a, a a part of her world that feels both American and also very modern too. That one doesn't have to be in a formal setting in order to feel this kind of connection. Many Catholics here in the Archdiocese of Baltimore may be familiar with Mother Seton's story because of her connection here, both in Baltimore and Emmitsburg. Um, How was it that Mother Seton wound up in the Archdiocese of Baltimore? Right. So after returning from Italy, she's in New York, and her family is somewhat put out that she wants to be Catholic. It was not a religion that was understood at the time to be compatible with uh, Americanness. Uh, in a way that, of course, it it is now. Um, Her family was never cruel to her, but there were a series of kind of deep misunderstandings that occurred, and really everyone decided that she and her children would be better off in a place where she could more fully express her Catholicism, and feel that she had a community around her. And at the time, that really meant Maryland because, um, as you know, and I bet um, a lot of your listeners know, Maryland had been founded as a Catholic colony, and those days were in the past, but there were still more Catholics there. There were uh, Sulpician priests. There was St. Mary's. And so they brought her there both so that she could feel cared for in a Catholic community and also so that she could become a kind of public, respectable face for this religion that most Americans mistrusted. And you have a beautiful description of her arrival in Baltimore aboard the Grand Sacrum ship. She was actually delayed in her arrival, which meant that she could attend the dedication of St. Mary's Chapel, the seminary chapel at St. Mary's on Packer Street. Could you talk about that, that a little bit? Absolutely. So, uh, right, she's left New York uh, with uh, her daughters, and they have this kind of dreadful uh, water passage. They finally um, get to Baltimore. It's raining, uh, but the Sulpicians have have kind of sent a carriage. And then all of a sudden, uh, there she is uh, at this church being dedicated right then, and she sees priests that she's familiar with from New York, as well as um, other priests that she hasn't met. They're in their vestments. Um, It's a beautiful church. Uh, People are singing hymns, and she really feels as if she's, she's kind of arrived in a city of God in a way that she did not feel New York had offered to her, and then she's just so thrilled uh, that she's uh, she and her children are set up in a little house on Packer Street, which people can can still visit. So it's a wonderful place to visit, and she can hear the bells. Right, she's she's living within the fabric of a rich Catholic life in a way that she had dreamed of since since leaving Italy. Then she she didn't spend a lot of time in Baltimore, and then she traveled to Emmitsburg. And and what did she do in Emmitsburg? Her hope and the hope of some of the clergy uh, uh, who helped her was to establish a, a sisterhood in the United States, kind of like the Daughters of Charity in France, a little bit like the Ursulines, so not a cloistered 
convent, obviously, because Elizabeth herself had young children, um, and the church needed uh, people to work for it, really needed these women's work. So that's what was established in Emmitsburg, and Emmitsburg um, was very remote then. I mean, it's still it's still a beautiful place, right? It still feels like the, the countryside uh, now, and you can kind of see the Blue Ridge. Um, then it was a difficult travel over a, a, a pitted turnpike, uh, but they made the trip. She began to gather other women uh, to herself who wanted to be a part of this new sisterhood. Even before its rules were written, uh, people wanted to be a part of it. And they established a school which had both uh, a part to which you could pay tuition and then a part that was either free or reduced tuition for local children. So that was kind of the first establishment of it. And then before long, they had a mission to Philadelphia and a mission to New York. And from there grew what really became a national and and international benevolent organization. Really, the roots of the Catholic school system can be found in her work. Absolutely, right. And uh, Sisters of Charity have also written uh, about this as well. Sister Betty Ann McNeil, for example, is is expert on this. And I do want to make clear that all the letters I was able to read, all the journals, all the this wonderful evidence of Elizabeth Seton's life was collected over the centuries um, by Sisters and Daughters of Charity. What most surprised you about researching Mother Seton? What did you learn in the process? I learned a lot. I learned about the kindness of others who shared these archives with me, and I also was sort of endlessly surprised and moved by Elizabeth Seton's capacity to question herself, um, to ask what the best path was, to take risks, and so to live this very daring life, but to do it within a world of gentleness and love and humility that really meant um, that she created connections and hope uh, wherever she went. And I I hope uh, that I have learned something from that. And how can people order your book? Oh, uh, it's all the usual places. It's on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's in some, some local uh, bookstores. And if anyone just you know wants to sort of share with me their own experience of Mother Seton, which people do sometimes, um, my email is up on Arizona State University's uh, website, and I love to hear from people. Our guest has been Catherine O'Donnell, author of Elizabeth Seton, American Saint. For Catholic Review Radio, I'm George Matisek. Thanks for listening. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.